the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series for the semester. I'm Rose Kalanick, and I'm proud to present, happy to present Josh Schifferinson, um, who's here from Boston University. I've known Josh for a long time. Uh, yeah, he's, he did his BA at Brandeis, yep. uh, then MIT for his PhD, and then spent five years, is that right? At uh, Texas A&M <laughs> University, and he's now at Boston University. Uh, the title of his talk, which is on the slide above me, but I will nevertheless read, The Insular Advantage, Geography, and the Durability of American Alliances, which is co-authored with John Schusler. Um, every single time that we've had somebody come, there's been a Chicago connection. You're the one that's not, and yet you wrote this with John Schusler, who is a Chicago person. So we have failed yet again to sort of escape that. Um, but I'm very much looking forward to the paper. Uh, I think all of you know the one-finger, two-finger rule. Um, if you have a, like a comment or question that's right on the topic being discussed, you can do two fingers, jump to the front of the line. Otherwise, um, if you abuse it, I'll banish you to the end of the list. Um, and I will also be sending around an NDISC email list. I think many of you are already on it, but if you're not, uh, please do sign up for our emails. And with that, I will let you take it away, Josh. Great, thank you. Uh, thank you, Rose, for having me out, and thank you all for showing up. I know it's that time of the semester where uh, days get short and assignments get long, so thank you all for turning up. Uh, and and the, the, this paper is entitled The Insular Advantage, Geography and the Durability of American Alliances, but this paper has actually a weird pedigree. John Schusler and I initially were, co were writing separate papers, and we were putting a panel together. We discovered our papers paired well together. Then we had to figure out what they paired well about, so it's been an iterative process. I'm, I'm really looking forward to all of your feedback, all of your comments, and I'll just say at the outset that if there are any typos in the paper, it is all John, not me. So th th this paper began life in a different form, as I mentioned, but it's gained new salience uh, thanks to this dude. Uh, in, in this day and age, I think it's fair to say there's a concern that American alliances are under duress, right? And they're under stress. There's isolationist rhetoric put out by Trump during the 2016 campaign, as well as concern that the U.S. might be retrenching from the world. There's worries in turn that the U.S. may be willing to cut deals with ostensible rivals like Russia, China, perhaps North Korea, perhaps isolating allies, traditional allies in the process. And accompanying this, there are actually overt threats to abandon traditional allies, most notably uh, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And I say ostensibly, we can talk about what this means in practice, but there's a concern out there nevertheless. The bottom line is that there's a growing prospect, at least a growing concern, a growing discussion, that the U.S. might be abandoning its traditional allies. Now, what's interesting is that we've been here before. There's a lot of teeth gnashing over this, but the U.S. has been here before. Uh, in the 1950s, as some of you know, Dwight Eisenhower made the prospect of abandoning American alliances in Europe actually a focal point of his foreign policy, trying to get a European security force together. In the 1960s and later, the U.S., for lack of a better term, threatened the Germans, the West Germans, with reckless abandonment if they did not surrender their nuclear uh, desires. In the 1970s, Jimmy Carter discussed abandoning South Korea. So the point is, the Trump discussion about abandonment is actually part and parcel of a long tendency in American foreign policy. Nevertheless, U.S. alliances have endured and indeed thrive today 
The U.S. is allied by some measure with 65 countries in the world. This is, these are alliances, these are treaty agreements that encompass about a quarter of the world's population and up to three-quarters of global GDP. So while there are concerns that the U.S. may be abandoning its allies today with uncertain negative effects, we've been here before, and yet alliances have survived. And this begs the question, number one, why does the U.S. do this? What explains the U.S. tendency to threaten its allies and try to coerce them with threats of abandonment? Second, why has the U.S. alliance network remained robust, both sustaining itself and actually growing over time, despite threats of abandonment, if these concerns are real, if abandonment actually denigrates and creates problems for American alliances? And built into this, if we look at deeper, we can actually point to instances that I'll talk about later in this presentation where the U.S. gets goodies from its allies by threatening abandonment, begging the question, when and why does that tendency occur? Now, what's really interesting is that these, ten, these trends are really puzzling for prevailing institutionalist views on how alliances operate. Institutionalist argument often sees that alliances are actually packs of restraint, where a strong and dominant, powerful United States binds itself, t- ties its hands, limits its coercive power towards its partners, suggesting that if the U.S. threatens abandonment, threatens coercion, this should be really detrimental to the alliance. Nevertheless, alliances thrive and have thrived even when the U.S. throws its weight around, suggesting that the institutionalist narrative about alliances that we hear often in the policy discussion these days that we see in IR theory faces some real problems. So this is where John and I try to make an intervention in the alliance discussion, the alliance literature. We, argue, we try to build out this idea that we call the insular advantage. Um, we, more specifically, we propose that geography constitutes an underappreciated source of U.S. leverage inside of its alliances. And not just geography in general, but particularly the fact that the U.S. is an insular power. By insularity, we mean that a state is the only great power on a large body of land surrounded otherwise by water. Insular uh, islands, you guys get get the journal idea. And in this regard, and we can talk about this more in Q&A, The U.S. is the insular power par excellence. There are other insular powers across time and space, Britain, Japan, but the U.S. is far larger. It occupies a far bigger insular position. And in case we forget what we're talking about, um, that's the United States. We we, we can see uh, where it is relative to the rest of the world. It's surrounded by large ocean moats, has weak neighbors to the north and south. It's the only great power in the Western Hemisphere. And this fact carries two powerful consequences for alliance politics. Um, The first point is that the U.S., by virtue of being an insular power, has what we call the freedom to roam. Uh, The U.S. is inherently secure, right? No country is going to invade the United States. And because of that, the U.S. can put marginal resources into power projection tools, things that allow it to go abroad. We have aircraft carriers that can sail far afield. We have a large air force. Uh, We have an expeditionary army or ground force and a Marine Corps, a second army. Uh, we have the freedom to roam. We have a lot of weight to throw around the world far from our shores. The second point to say is that the U.S. is an attractive security provider. Now, other scholars have spoken about the attractiveness of American security guarantees, but we don't think they go far enough. The U.S. is not just an awesome partner. It's actually an ally of first resort to address local insecurity problems. When there's a local problem overseas, be it a threat like terrorism, be it an imbalanced distribution of power in Europe or in East Asia, 
the U.S. is called in because by being far away and having lots of goodies to throw around, to throw out a problem, the U.S. just is an awesome partner to have involved, which means that the U.S. is often invited in to foreign regions while experiencing comparatively little counterbalancing by states that might otherwise seem threatening. And combined, the fact that the U.S. has freedom to roam and is an attractive security partner means that the U.S. has the ability to create durable alliances that are subject to American coercion and American threats of abandonment. States, as I noted a minute ago, actually often seek out American engagement. Whenever the U.S., and I'll speak to this a little bit more in a few moments, threatens to abandon a foreign outpost, a foreign ally, the first thing the ally does is try to get the U.S. back involved. There's a demand, a persistent demand for American allies, for American alliances, excuse me. And built into that, of course, is because the U.S. is inherently secure, if an ally does get upset or if an ally doesn't want to ally on American terms, doesn't want to give the U.S. goodies when the U.S. demands it, the U.S. can always threaten to move offshore. It has a latent ability to threaten abandonment. Combined, allies are therefore encouraged to bid for what I would call bidding for American backing, and they can be reminded constantly why the U.S. is a valuable ally. And I should note that this is not just a situation with existing allies. When local insecurity problems pop up, one or more partners to that insecurity often seek American backing. Now, of course, these goods, the benefits, the, the, the insular strengths aren't invariable. They actually fluctuate across time and space. Uh, in, in fact, much depends on the United States' ability to credibly threaten exit. If, a, if an ally thinks that the U.S. is just bluffing about abandonment, of course they're not going to give in on alliance demand. They may not worry about American threats of abandonment and bid to keep the U.S. around. So much is going to depend on a credible <laughs> threat of exit. And we, we hypothesize, we predict that this should arise under two distinct circumstances. The first is when allies themselves begin considering alternative security arrangements. Think of the idea of crafting an independent European security identity or a possible US-Japan-China uh, deal rolling forward. These are situations where allies have to ask themselves, well, what might happen if the US leaves? If, if I can get security through some other way, and the US thinks I can get some security through another mechanism, might the US not pull out? Are there ongoing discussions along those lines? The second possibility, probably the more pervasive one, is the one we see today. That is, situations where there seems to be domestic pressure in the United States for retrenchment, be it due to exhaustion from overseas conflicts, due to economic dislocations, due to uh, just a, a general ennui, a zeitgeist shift in American uh, mindset. Just Let's just bracket the reasons why there might be domestic calls for retrenchment and just say that when there are domestic calls for retrenchment, allies observing this are likely to ask themselves, maybe this time it's serious, maybe this time the U.S. is going to go home. But that trend has to be there for American policymakers to play to, to, to cue to. The bottom line is that these two trends allow the U.S. policymaking establishment, U.S. leaders, to foreground possible U.S. retreat and kind of browbeat allies over the head on the possibility, allowing them to shape allied behavior in turn. Okay. So what does this look like in practice, right? Well, there, there's really a core prediction that comes out of this idea of insular advantages to American power. Um, Number one, we should see a pretty good track record of the U.S. using 
threats of abandonment to keep allies in line and to shape the terms of American engagement, right? Just, we should see process evidence and outcome evidence that are consistent with this general hypothesis. We can contrast this with, excuse me, uh, what, what an institutionalist argument, the, the kind of the, the, the existing interpretation of alliance politics would say. They would say that a threats of abandonment should be really rare and above all, really detrimental to alliance cohesion. If there's a whiff that the U.S. is not bound to alliances, or if there's a hint that the U.S. will throw its weight around to shape the terms of engagement, that should cause these institutions to unravel and fall apart, raising questions of American credibility, the cohesion of the American enterprise, uh, just lots of downsides that you kind of see in the policy discussion in this day and age. So what do we find? Well, as you would expect from someone who's talking about the insular advantage, we find that threats of abandonment indeed uh, abound. Uh, this is only a partial list, but it's really quite a striking list. During the Cold War and afterwards, since 1945, the U.S. has threatened to abandon the following countries. It threatened to abandon West Germany, threatened to abandon Taiwan, threatened to abandon South Korea on several instances, threatened implicitly to abandon Israel, never a formal ally, but threats of isolating Israel threatened to abandon France in the future, what, be, what would later become the European Union. The U.S. threatened to abandon Japan if Japan didn't give up its nuclear aspirations. And it threatened to abandon Britain if Britain didn't start, uh, excuse me, didn't stop trying to provoke the Soviets into a, uh, what could have been a third world war. And I'm, I'm happy to speak to any of this more in the Q&A session. But the bottom line is that the U.S. has threatened to abandon most major American allies on some really core security issues, ranging from nuclear weapons, to conventional force levels, to uh, what conflicts we are going to take on the third world and beyond. These are not small subsidiary issues, but the core of American alliance behavior. So the bottom line is, on a number of fundamental alliances and fundamental issues that make alliances tick, the U.S. has threatened abandonment over and over and over. All right, so that's, the, that, that's a track record. Let, let, me, let me speak this a little bit in practice, a little more detail, by talking about uh, how the insular advantage actually shapes the substance of American policy and allied behavior towards the United States. Uh, and I'm going to do this by looking at the early Cold War debates over European security and the U, what became the U.S. presence in NATO, in the North Atlantic Tree Organization. That, that thing founded in the late 1940s, designed to keep the Soviets out, the Germans down, the Americans in. Uh, in fact, that, that, that in part, the Americans in, is, it, it's an interesting proposition. The institutionalist argument takes this idea and runs with it, saying that the U.S. was indeed bound to Western Europe, tied down in uh, European security debates, shortly after the start of the Cold, what became the Cold War. The U.S. was indeed bound in. But John and I argue, and I, think we're, and, and I think diplomatic historians would agree with us, that this notion that the U.S. was bound to Europe early on really understates the, Amer the shadow of an American exit and in turn the strength of the U.S. position in mucking about, that's my technical term, with its allies. Uh, let me talk about this in, in some detail. Um, in fact, we now know by the likes of Mark Trachtenberg, James McAllister, and others that the U.S. intended to create a European third force, that was the term used, uh, to establish European security that would offset the Soviet Union, that would counterbalance the Soviet Union, and allow the U.S. to pick up, uh, pick up ship, pick up troops, and come on home. The, the, to it. NATO was going to be a temporary expedient, a, a shield behind which Europe rebuilt and could stand alone against the Soviets. Uh, 
And to get this thing together, in the early Cold War, the United States put forward what became known as the European Defense Community, the EDC. You're going to hear me use that phrase a lot. Um, now, the thing is, the European Defense Community, the EDC, was going to be a pooling effort by West Germany, by France, by Britain, the three core Western allies uh, during the Cold the three core American allies in Europe during the Cold War, to stand against the Soviets. And needless to say, uh, with memories of World War II still fresh, uh, the French and the British were not too enthusiastic about partnering with the Germans. And in fact, there was a lot of uh, unpleasantness. I'm gonna, I'm, that's a, uh, in diplomatic speak, that's a polite way of saying massive shouting matches. Um, but to get this thing together, the U.S. says to the Euro West Europeans, and I'm paraphrasing here, that if the, US, the, the West Europeans drag their heels and refuse to come together, the U.S. might have to come on home anyway. In other words, if the European, even though the Europeans want the U.S. in, the U.S. is saying, look, I'm out anyway. Get your act together, otherwise I'm out sooner than you think. And we see this in a number of diplomatic conversations. Uh, the Secretary of State threatens West European leaders with the loss of congressional support for, a European, defense, for European defense funds. There's a discussion of American, uh, the American public rebelling against the nascent Cold War status quo, calling for the U.S. to, get, to stay engaged, at least temporarily, in Europe. We see American policymakers bludgeoning French and British leaders especially over the head with this matter that if the EDC does not come together, the U.S. might be out of Europe. And that actually generates a response. The French put forward becomes the Plevin Plan. Uh, I'm not going to go into the details about this, but the Plevin Plan becomes the core of the EDC. The British agree to cooperate with the French in keeping the West Germans constrained. And it seems the U.S. threat to abandon actually catalyzes movement towards a European security identity, at least in 19, 1951. Now, by 1954, however, there's still a lot of European heel-dragging. There are nice plans on paper, but there's no actual integration of forces. In fact, France vetoes left, right, and center uh, the resumption of a West German military presence because the West Germans, again, former Nazis, they don't necessarily love this idea. Not all West Germans were Nazis, but th that's the French concern. Forgive me for saying this. Uh, I know this is being recorded. I'll regret this later on. And so in response, uh, just calling it like I see it, um, in, in response, we return to the 1950-1951 strategy where Dean Acheson, excuse me, uh, John Foster Dulles, who's then the Secretary of State take, in the Eisenhower administration, taking over from the Truman administration, says that if the French continue, if the French and the Brits continue dragging their heels on the EDC, the U.S. would be forced to undertake what's called the agonizing reappraisal. Now, that, that, that's a heck of a term, right, an agonizing reappraisal. Uh, we know that behind the scenes, uh, uh, Foster Dulles was actually quite adamant that the U.S. might abandon the West Europeans if they didn't get their act together. Uh, and the French and the Brits having intelligence sources, having diplomatic discussions of their own, are aware of this. This scares them quite a bit. And although the EDC itself is killed by French leaders who en engage in weird parliamentary maneuvers to kill the EDC, it generates two profound shifts in European policy. Number one, uh, the French actually begin allowing uh, the Germans to rearm. And more importantly, number two, the Brits, who had been lukewarm on the possibility of the EDC coming together, take a more active role in engaging on the continent of Europe, putting 
a greater presence on the continent. So it's not a full-scale shift in the American direction, but it certainly is a shift by degree in the direction of the United States. Now, as I mentioned, it prompts a shift in ally policy. Now, this is the, uh, this is the Truman-Eisenhower story, but indeed we actually see this later on in the early 1960s, when by this point in time, the U.S. has, as the institutionalists would claim, committed at least for a period of time to European security. But the flip side of it is, if they're going to be committed, the Americans want to run the show. They don't want to be subservient to Franco-German-British discussions over how much security, how much defense spending, what, what the policy of NATO will be, especially on nuclear weapons, which are coming into vogue at this moment in time. And so the U.S. policy is to say, if we are going to be involved in Europe, we are going to run the show, set nuclear policy. And I want to be very clear, by setting nuclear policy, this is quite unpleasant for the West Europeans because if World War III breaks out, and this is the height of the Cold War and this possibility can't, can't be discounted, the first nuclear bomb to land will be on West European soil, and no one really wants to globe that bright orange. So the West Europeans are quite concerned about the U.S. running the nuclear mission. Nevertheless, uh, and, and indeed, what we see as the U.S. begins trying to push this deal forward, the French and the Germans who are now coordinate tacitly, and they try to rebel. Americans are concerned at this point in time that the French may indeed be willing to cut a deal with the Soviets over the backs of, the Amer over the backs of NATO, perhaps killing NATO in the process, because better red than dead might actually be better than better dead than red. So, in response... The Americans do what any good insular state would do. They threaten the West Germans with abandonment, saying either play along with the policy that we're, that we're adopting or we will indeed abandon you and you'll be left to deal with a Franco-Soviet condominium that you will probably not like the answer to. Well, this scares the West Germans and they turn tail and un it undercuts the French position and all of a sudden we have a policy adopted by Europe that they agree to operate in NATO under the American aegis. Or as I like to call it, the, it becomes NATO uber alles. So to summarize, what's the bottom line here? This is only suggestive evidence, but I think it is significant evidence. We found a very stark track record, just across a number of cases, of the US threatening allied abandonment in ways that seem at odds with the idea that Trump is sui generis, that institutionalized alliances don't generate abandonment uh, tendencies. We also found that alliances, as a result, we can look at the track record and say that alliances hung together despite abandonment threats, that indeed uh, the shape of the alliances that we see today are actually a byproduct of the abandonment concerns, that abandonment tendencies in this day and age are not abnormal, but actually part of what we've seen in the past. And this highlights, the case study at least, highlights the advantages and impact of the U.S. playing to its insular strengths uncertain times and in certain issues. And I'm not making a general, I, I think we should talk about the conditionality of this argument because it's, it's a bit too much to claim that that's a universal trend. All right, so, but so, so, so what are the implications of this? Let's assume that John and I are basically right. What, what are the implications? Um, well, for th I, I think it carries implications for both theory and for policy. For theory, um, I think this project calls for really reinvigorating the study of geography in brand strategy and foreign policy and in IR theory. Geography, of course, is often discussed in IR theory, but it's discussed in kind of an offhand, kind of passive manner. It's regarded as one of the 
uh, structural modifiers and structural realism that shapes how intensely states compete with each other. It's some states are considered more likely to be balanced than others because of poor or advantageous geographic positions. But I think this paper highlights that states can play to these structural strengths under certain conditions to generate real trends in foreign policy and by extension in IR theory. And I think this paper suggests the need for more robust theorizing and the role of geography, queuing back to an old geopolitical tradition of the kind of Spiekman and Mackinder. That's, that's, that's theory. As for uh, policy, I, I, I actually think it's a little contrarian. I think uh, the bottom line is if we're right, then allies can kind of be abused by the United States without imperiling the durability of the alliances per se. Right? Alliances can hang together despite, ally, despite threatening and coercing allies. And that means in terms of the US has great freedom of action. So for concerns that Trump is a and challenging the status quo, or that American allies are soon to be overturned because of abandonment threats, that the Europeans will run for the hills and craft the independent security identity, that we might see Japan bandwagon with China, and we could go on down the list. Um, I, I, I think this pushes back on that. The, the bottom line then is that threatening allies may not be normatively pleasant, we may not like seeing it in practice, but it doesn't mean it's the end of the relationships, right? Alliances can hang together despite this, meaning that before we talk about alliances as these careful things to be shepherded and husbanded along and protected like Fabergé eggs, there's actually a lot of latent resiliency because of the American insular position. But with that, let me uh, step back and take some questions. Well, thank you, Professor, and I'm sorry about your eggies this season. Oh, but, thank you. Uh, my question is about um, the credibility of American threats yep. and how domestic politics might change or ruin that or have any effect at all. Because, for example, there's remarkable consistency between President Obama and President Trump on complaints about NATO, mm -hmm. and yet you attribute President Trump having some sort of bigger effect. But at the same time, the Senate has passed a very non-controversial declaration of support for the true body that controls the purse and foreign affairs for decades now. So why is it that if I'm an ally to the United States or I'm a NATO member, why is it that I'm more afraid or I'm more incentivized all of a sudden by Trump's threats of abandonment when it's a message I've heard before and it seems like there's a wide divergence even in the same party among the branches of government on this. So uh, I, I just want to, I should clarify this. I, I wouldn't necessarily claim that allies should be more concerned about Trump than others because you heard me say at the outset that it's ostensible that Trump is a departure from past practice. I, I fundamentally agree with you that uh, other presidents have made allied cheap riding, free riding a very big problem. Um, nevertheless, I would, I would argue, I, I think it's fair to say that the sentiment that Trump has brought to the alliance, to, to alliance politics has been, has tapped into a deeper stream of do less Americanism in the world than prior administrations. There's a reason that prior administrations sort that we, that we didn't really pay attention, we as Americans, we as analysts didn't necessarily pay great attention to um, prior administrations flagging the issue. Partially it's because it was people like Bob Gates talking about it and not Obama per se, but even when Obama hinted at it under at times and places, it would be discussed and then would go back to status quo. 
Trump seems to have tapped into a deeper wellspring of uh, something else, do lessism, which I think is making allies quite uh, quite anxious, or at least more anxious. Just to follow up, Professor, but just to perhaps play with that view a little bit, if, say, I'm a NATO member and I challenge Trump on it, I say, do it. Remove NATO. I know you can't. I know it's, it has to go through the Senate, and I know I talk to senators, or say even if you're Saudi Arabia, do it. Stop supporting the war in Yemen. I know the senators won't let you do it. I mean, how much freedom of action does the American president really have? It's a good question. Uh, I, th I, I think it's a reasonable question to ask. Would that set up a constitutional crisis in some ways because the president is indeed the commander-in-chief under those situations? It would be a real interesting conversation over what it means to have a treaty alliance without any troops on the ground. Right? That's a good going concern. I think the bigger point that you're getting at, though, is what happens if an ally calls the U.S. bluff and the U.S. indeed begins to go offshore? Well, if my argument is correct, then the act of going offshore, it reminds allies that left without the United States, they have to confront problems on their own. And if they'd rather uh, have a protector or have an ally in this process or have the U.S. support in this process, the act of retrenchment or the, th or the credible threat of retrenchment, if the U.S. indeed begins acting on what might otherwise be a bluff, uh, should send a shot across the bow of allies that might be inclined to challenge the credibility. Josh, uh, this is a terrific paper. I mean, I, I love the hook. Um, you know, I agree that it's not just Trump. Of course, Trump has, yeah. like everything else, magnified the issue. Um, and I like the larger theoretical argument with geography, although I think it's a little bit under-theorized. I, mean, I think it's got to be geography plus something. Maybe we could talk about that later. But I just wanted to make uh, one observation about the paper and ask you two clarifying questions. The observation about the paper and your confession about its uh, patrimony or origins confirm my suspicion is that it's two papers combined. Um, and the, uh, the, the residual legacy of that, in my view, is the dependent variable isn't very clear. I mean, sometimes you're talking about successful coercion, and sometimes you're talking about uh, alliance persistence. Um, both of those can be um, implications of your argument, but I think both shouldn't be in this paper. I think you want to sort of clarify that. The two questions I had uh, concerned um, the logic of the argument. And the key for you is the credible threat uh, of US exit. And the second element to that, US domestic pressure for retrenchment, makes perfect sense to me, you know, both logically and empirically. Uh, I don't get the alternative allied security plans. Um, you know, couldn't you say, if they're going to do that, then we're going to say, you know, great, that's exactly uh, what, what we want. It doesn't seem to fit into this story you're telling about how this is a uh, subtle strategy uh, for uh, mau mauing our allies, because that's the allies, you know, sort of ponying up almost <clears throat> without us doing anything. Um, the recurrent threats to bug out, uh, I think you tell a good story in recounting those recurrent threats, but in a weird way, you don't provide the sort of process evidence in doing so, 
that I think your argument really needs to be sustained. It's basically, you know, we threatened to go home and the Allies caved. Uh, that's a correlational argument. It's good evidence. But the key argument is the rationale. Right. And here, I, I'm not sure, and maybe the historiography that you know better than I do could, could settle this question, but as I was thinking about it, there are two possibilities that are distinct. One is uh, that we're subtle uh, strategists and that we're playing this bluff game uh, to get the Europeans uh, to do what we want to do. And we really want to stay. Uh, we really want to stay, um, but we're, we're just bluffing. The only thing wrong with this argument is it assumes way too much uh, subtlety. Uh, subtlety on the part of the United States. So that leads me to wonder if there isn't an alternative possibility, and that's that we really want to go. We want to get out of there. Um, and you know, a lot of the sources that um, you're talking about provide lots of evidence that you know, our view initially after World War II is uh, you know, we'll help out, but we'll get out as soon as we can. And that's what's going on is not so much that we're playing the Europeans or our other allies like a Stradivarius, but rather uh, that they keep making us too good an offer that we can't go. Now, I'm not saying which of these is right, but what I am saying is I think to have more rationale evidence that we're thinking the way you and John are suggesting we're thinking would be helpful in terms of uh, really uh, carrying your argument. So let me summarize by saying yes to all of that. Um, but by which I mean, I entirely agree that this paper uh, needs a clearer dependent variable. It's gone through, uh, without revealing too much of the sausage being made, there's been an ongoing discussion of, the, of this issue. And I think you've hit the nail on the head on that front. And so. I am sold on that, and I would like to have that conversation later on because it is an ongoing uh, discussion that, that we want to take seriously. Um, let me punt for now on the alternative security arrangements because, again, that's been part of the ongoing discussion as well. I, th we agree, I think we are in agreement that the domestic political uh, zeitgeist wave is the way to call is is the more powerful lifter. Uh, as for the process evidence, you're right, and I've been going through. Um, Fruce and some of the foreign relations of the U.S. series and some other archival sources. And it, it seems that both the possibilities that you've, that you've raised are occurring, are, are occurring. We are indeed subtle strategies at certain moments in time. And you can almost see the Secretary of State and Undersecretary of State and Ambassadors occasionally dropping hints that the U.S. is going to get out in order to get the Europeans to ante up. The flip side of it is that once the Europeans ante up, that's when the, the deal that you can't refuse kicks in. So I think there's probably, there's got to be a way to blend these two streams together to explain the process by which the U.S., uh, even when using threats of abandonment, still gets stuck, you know, still gets, uh, what do you want to call it, getting suckered in, snookered in, and again tied down. And that, that tendency kicks in. So I think both of your possibilities are actually uh, alive and well. Thanks a lot. Uh, I had two questions which are kind of related, which would be 
find more specifics about who and when threatened to leave. You mentioned about 70 years of, of the, I guess, the United States administration's threatening to leave, and you gave seven countries or seven areas in which that happened. Are there times or places in which the U.S. is more, threatens more or less so? So that's one question. And the other question is, when or where would you consider that the U.S. threatened to leave and actually did leave? If there is no such place, or if there aren't enough, so are the, I mean, how could we consider, I mean, as allies, right, how would we consider these threats to be so, both are terrific questions. Let, let me take them in turn. Uh, when and why does the U.S. threaten more or less to leave? The, the tendency, let me go back to that list for a second. Uh, this is only a partial list, but the most notable trends have been over things like nuclear weapons and conventional uh, defense posture, conventional force positions. Uh, the, 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 the trend line there, I think, is that things which fundamentally might change the relative distribution of power inside the alliance and therefore affect uh, the way in which the U.S. engages tend to provoke the most draconian threats of abandonment. And that, that need not be threats to the American position by virtue of a larger Europe. It's just things that may affect the distribution of power and in turn the, US, the nature of the U.S. commitment tend to provoke uh, the starkest debates. So it's when fundamental shifts are in evidence, one way or another, that we see the biggest threats. When, and when does the U.S. threaten to leave, or excuse me, uh, when does the U.S. actually leave, and if it doesn't actually leave, what are allies to make of the U.S. threats? The U.S. doesn't leave, period, hard stop. I mean, there are very few allies the U.S., the alliances the U.S. has broken uh, in any serious way. But to answer the question of why allies would still believe that, because the U.S. pervasively has the option. And it's never clear that this time isn't for real. It's a little bit like predicting the end of the unipolar uh, era, right? You never quite know when it's over until it's actually over. So I think there's something about the, the nature of international competition that causes allies in the competitive world to think in worst-case ways when it comes to threats of abandonment. And that's a rational security concern. It is not unreasonable that if you're highly dependent on another country for security, that you take threats of being left alone quite seriously, even if there's no evidence that the U.S. has done this in the past. Uh, yes, um, I really enjoyed your talk, so thank you for coming today. Um, and I was curious about uh, what you think will happen. I mean, you talked briefly about the end of the unipolar period and um, <coughs> Uh, what you think will happen at the end of the current unipolar period. I mean, people are predicting that China may rise to become the second pole. Uh, and uh, also, I was curious about um, how you sort of separate the idea that it's a geographical advantage over just the simple fact that the U.S. is, in fact, the unipole of the world. How much of this is a lot? How much of this is geography? How much of, of it is just that the U.S. is the big dog on the block, right? Um, I think on the uh, on the question of unipolarity or just sheer U.S. power, the fact that we see this behavior occurring even in the bipolar era of the Cold War suggests that it's not the stark.
power differential of the United States being number one that's driving a lot of the show. Indeed, the fact that we see the Soviet Union triggering lots of counterbalancing uh, suggests that at least part of it is due to sh differences in geographic position. I can see Eugene making a face already when I say this, so we'll come back to that in a little bit. But I think a lot of this is, not, is about geography and not just sheer power differentials. What might happen, though, if uh, China indeed rises or the U.S. strength continues to wane? Uh, or, or wanes entirely. Um, I actually think the demand for an American alliance will go up in many instances, right? If we think that geography, that proximate states, because again, one of the U.S. advantages is distance, if we think that proximate states tend to trigger lots of counterbalancing, then there's going to be a really stark demand for an American <coughs> presence in East Asia uh, rolling forward, right? By the, by the likes of South Korea, by the likes of Japan, by the likes of India to a degree, and so on and so forth. And if that's true, then the U.S. ability to threaten abandonment is actually going to go up, not go down. Questions? So the first question is um, the, the, the idea that the U.S. is secure at home because of the uh, geographic insularity. How much does it still apply to contemporary times? rise of terrorism, uh, cyber attacks, and other threats from North Korea. Stopping powers of the oceans has been bigger. Um, so I would say um, the concept of, that we are secure at home is a little bit outdated, not concerning these uh, new threats. And then the second one, the second question, um, it's actually building on the earlier question that how much of it is geography and how much of it is just China, the U.S. is being a superpower. Um, I don't agree with the, the Soviet, uh, the, the Cold War example. I think for lots of um, U.S. allies, the Soviet as an alternative is just not, not viable. But a nice counterfactual would be a dispute in South America, whether they would com compete for the U.S. security assurance, um, even the U.S. is not insular. But I think um, in many cases, the South American countries would still compete for U.S. security assurance. Sure. Um, you just get that last question. So on the question of the U.S. having security at home, it's, it, it, it's an important point. I think it's easy to overstate how much security the U.S. does have. But uh, while I would agree with you that there are real challenges born of changes in technology and medium uh, of interaction, be it through cyber, be it through uh, transoceanic, transoceanic trade, aircraft, so on and so forth, missile ICBMs and so on and so forth, uh, compared to almost any other country, the U.S. has a great deal of latent security. And if nothing else, the, these other challenges that you mentioned, while they are real, I don't think constitute fundamental threats to the, to, uh, to the United States as a, as a sovereign nation, as an existent, it doesn't rise to the level of an existential threat. And therefore, because states have lots of resources to throw at different problems, the U.S. still has a great capacity relative to any, almost any other country one could imagine to put uh, resources towards power projection that allow it to engage overseas. It's not an absolute judgment, and I uh, fundamentally agree with you on this, but I think in relative terms, the inherent U.S. advantages of insularity still hold. Um, 
As for the question of uh, South America and the counterfactual that you raised there, you know, it, it's a really, it, it's, it's an important one and it's really interesting. Um, I hadn't thought, I legitimately had not thought about it. I think, um, I think though that the, 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 the fact that uh, impressionistically, in times past, a number of South American countries ranging from Argentina, Brazil, and a few others sought uh, American involvement when they had disputes amongst each other suggests that there's advantages to gaining the U.S. on the side, which I don't think would be present if the U.S. were located uh, proximate to these, uh, more proximate to, excuse me, these other countries because as we see, those are the countries that tend to end up in rivalries. Thank you, Professor, for your talk. Um, I'm curious as to your thoughts uh, regarding why people would want to be allies with us. If we can credibly threaten to leave at any time, doesn't that remove any credibility of a security arrangement before it starts? Um, if we're to be secure anyway, um, why are we even throwing money at alliances? Um, does this change the calculus for the United States uh, about whether or not it should even have these security arrangements? Well, so there, you have two questions, right? One is, if the U.S. can credibly threaten abandonment, why would any countries trust the U.S.? The second point is to say, should the U.S. reconsider the matter? Uh, let me take the first one because it speaks to the second one. Um, if the U.S. can credibly threaten abandonment, why would any tr country trust the U.S. security guarantee? The answer is that when you have neighbors, when you have threats located near at home and there's lots of advantages from partnering with the U.S., perhaps there's a threat of American abandonment, but if you can even get temporary American support, that's an awesome thing to get in terms of your internecine disputes. So I think framing it as a credible commitment is the wrong way of thinking about it. I think the question is, are there advantages to gaining even a temporary American commitment? And I think the answer there is yes. Uh, on the should the U.S. reconsider the nature of these, these agreements, um, it's a little far afield from my talk, and I'm a little reluctant to get into my own personal views on the matter. But I do think that this uh, project suggests that for those who do want to, uh, I'm, I'll, I'll use a political science term, stab a silver stake through Dracula, the Dracula's heart of alliance commitments, um, it's going to be awfully hard to convince the allies that you're out for good because there's going to be a, a sucking noise trying to get the U.S. back in. So the Godfather three scenario. So it's a matter of providing the best kind of deal to the United States? Yeah, I think that they're bidding for a lot of these countries because getting American backing is an awesome thing to get in internecine disputes. Uh, bidding for American cooperation is, an, is a rational and an advantageous, advantageous things to do. So Josh, thanks for schlepping halfway across the country. Always a pleasure watching you work. Now let me dump all of your paper. Um, <laughs> look, I think this is empirically really interesting. I think uh, my sense is like you and John got pulled in by the empirics. You just you see all these contrary cases. We've seen this before. Here's a chance to illuminate policy. And I think you guys can, but I think you need to maybe do something that's less of an explanation and more of a theory. This is sort of atheoretical with a bunch of hand-waving in the front and a ton of empirical examples. So let me divide my comments into IV and DV stuff, starting with the DV. I don't want to pile on. You realize there's, there's not a dependent variable here. You have a bunch of them, and you don't really 
you aim at a bunch of birds, you don't hit any of them. But just drill deeper into what the demand for allies is. There's this sort of like, oh, and states have problems with security, and alliances solve that problem. Like terrorism. Like, you don't have to ally against a terrorist threat. It's not clear that you need to have a formal defense commitment to get intelligence sharing and other things that are necessary. Terrorism. So there's no real theory about what the demand for alliances are. It's sort of security is a problem, so alliances help it. Um, there's other issues with that we'll talk later, but let me switch to the independent variable, which is, I think, where that action and the value added of this paper is. Right? The title of the paper is about the advantages of insularity, and there's a couple of reasons thrown out about, like, hey, insularity is an advantage, but you can't show it because you don't have variation on an independent variable, and it's not tied to a dependent variable. Um, so one part of this is just a problem with scope, right? Like, it's the question other people ask me, like, okay, so how much of this is driven by polarity? All right, well, show me that polarity varies, and it's not, that's what's doing, it's insularity that's doing the work. Part of it is geography. You need to look at non-insular powers and see how they behave. It's different from insular powers. Um, part of it is non-U.S. cases, right? Why don't you look at the British? Why don't you look at the Japanese? And uh, Rosado and I did stuff on there are different kinds of insular powers. Insularity actually does vary. You're talking about it like it's a constant, but it's not. You know, the channel and the straits of mm -hmm. Korea are not as big as the Atlantic Ocean. Or when the United States is involved in Europe, it's kind of a territorial power. It's less of an insular power. So insularity varies, and you don't talk about that variance or use it. Um, finally, your cases are all Cold War, which all these things obviously tie together. But yeah, this, yeah in some sense, immediately undercuts your current relevance, right? Because in some, you're telling the never-ending alliance story, right? That things are just the same now as they were in the Cold War when you had 200 Soviet divisions that could possibly come across the border, and they're not. Um, so you need to, if you want to update this and make it policy relevant, you have to address that objection. Thanks again, though. So, so, so the, Joe, the, those comments are, I, I actually don't disagree. I, I don't think... Um, I don't disagree in any way, and I actually, I, I, I might push back in some subtle ways, though. I don't disagree fundamentally. I would push back a little bit. Uh, I agree on the DV issue, obviously. Um, on the IV front, or at least how much this is driven by polarity, um, that is on our to-do list because, uh, for my own work, there are some post-Cold War cases to be thrown out there, and I think I can show in pretty great detail that, um, or in, in decent detail, the part of the way in which the U.S. got German reunification was threatening to abandon some of the West Europeans if they didn't give away on some German reunification issues. I think I can, I think I, I have, have that material. But why don't you take it back to the 1870s? Well, so, so this has been an ongoing discussion in the paper. The paper was only recently reframed about the U.S. We initially had a macro discussion that got dinged at a, at a journal in a different form. We've been revising it. So it's been a fitting a court into a pint or a pint into a court, as the case might be. So this, so I, I actually don't disagree with any of these fundamental issues. The, the problem I, I see is that to make it about insularity or variation in the degree of insularity writ large, you're, discuss, you're talking about a book, not an article. If you're discussing uh, the advantages the U.S. derives from insularity, there are going to be these persistent questions unless we can scope it in the appropriate way. So I, I, I rather agree with the points that you're trying to make. I just think that grappling with them in a practical, functional sense is, it, it, it's an ongoing discussion. So I, I, I don't have any problems with the points you've raised. I think I'm just expressing my own angst over how to get there. 
Uh, I'm going to take the chair's prerogative and ask uh, a couple of my questions. Sure. So, uh, like Mike and Joe, I'm confused about what the question is, what the yeah. dependent variable is, that sort of thing. Um, but I'm also not sure what's surprising here. Yeah. Um, I actually think Eikenberry would agree. Like, I, I don't think Eikenberry would be surprised to, to see that there are abandonment threats and that there's this sort of push and pull tug of war going on between <coughs> the United States and, and Europe. I mean, he's writing about this tension between abandonment and domination, which implies that there is some up and down and back and forth on that. Um, so I don't think that sort of putting it up against the institutionalists actually is a useful foil for you. I mean, you're sort of putting words in their mouth maybe they're not saying. Um, I'm also not sure what's different about, so why do we expect that coercion and alliances is anything other than common? It seems like the premise or the sort of underlying assumption is that, well, if they're allies, there's not coercion going on. Um, but yeah. why would you think that, right? Um, I'm thinking about, you know, this, there's a Dan Dresner paper from, gosh, 20 years ago now, like allies, adversaries, right? And he basically argues that coercion's more effective coming from an ally than an adversary, yeah. right? So you see, I mean, why is that an unusual or an unexpected kind of thing? Um, my other question is why, so what choice do the allies have, right? If they're being sort of bumped around and abused by the United States, so they have the option of either being in alliance with the U.S. and getting coerced, or not being in alliance with the U.S. and getting coerced. Mm -hmm. Yes, no? I mean, because the issues that you talk about, West Germany, if they're trying to proliferate, the United States is going to... Right. Yeah, right. right. So I'm not sure what alternative they have. And I, you know, I'd be curious, maybe from your macro work, um, I don't know, just do little states quit alliances, like, ever? or much, aside from France, right? So there's like one example, but, um, yeah. Yeah, so l let me take those in no particular order. Um, what's different, why wouldn't we expect coercion? I fundamentally agree with you, uh, but I, I think this might also be a byproduct of the MIT Chicago tradition, because I think people at other institutions, at least scholars at other institutions, often present alliances as kind of politics free, right? It's you form an alliance, and then you're in alliance. And if you read much of the recent research on alliances, it's they hang together, they're credible, you can, it's all in the treaty, you agree about it on the front, and then you're kind of off the races. So I agree with you in a fundamental way that we would expect this, but I actually don't agree that many others, at least a lot, a lot of the literature, would present it. And the fact that we have a debate over how dare Trump threaten a lot allies with abandonment suggests that we can debate how much that is about Trump versus not, and this is not a defense or a critique of the Trump administration just an observation that much of the teeth gnashing that results from this suggests that there's a model of alliances that exist in people's heads that is kind of coercion and threat free. So I think, there's a, I think there is something that's surprising, at least to some people, even if you and I would look at this and go, what's novel? Well, I would be, I think it would be helpful if yeah. in the paper you explained theoretically why it's surprising. Yeah. Setting aside the question of empirically you know, let's let's survey scholars and see, or 20% surprised, or 80% sure. surprised, or whatever. But you know, what are, what is the expectations? Sure. Spell that out and sure. why and, and how is this different? 
let me offer a little bit of, uh, of intuition on that front, and this goes to your question about what would, you know, what would Eikenberry say, wouldn't he agree? Um, I think there's a large literature that hangs much of international cooperation, of which alliances are one manifestation thereof, on reputations for credibility, right? on the reputation of doing good deeds. Doing good deeds is too rough, but maintaining one's promises, right? And the hints that one may not maintain one's promises are seen as detrimental to credibility and in turn detrimental, detrimental to cooperation. Our point is to say that threatening to actually impair that quote-unquote reputation may generate some bang for the buck. And maybe that's the wrong term, but I'll use bang for the buck in this context anyway. Um, as for, and, and I think this is actually very important, uh, if not for Eikenberry, then for quite a number of institutionalist arguments which hang so much on reputations for credibility or resolve or their close, you know, the, the close synonyms that that literature uses. So I do think that there is something uh, theoretically counterintuitive about playing to ruining one's reputation, right? And I agree with it, but, but your fundamental point where I do agree with is that it needs to be drawn out more in the paper because it's not there now. That clearly needs to be brought out because I see heads nodding around the table. Um, DV, we'll, we will talk about in great detail. Um, but what choice do allies have, right? They're kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, in, in a way, uh, well, there's a whole, th there, there's a great question that would hinge on the size of the alliance, right? You know, can you, can you buck pass to others? Can you? make life France an abandoned because the U.S. still has Britain and Germany in the game. But I think uh, small states sometimes have a choice and they sometimes can maneuver out of the situation. The overall tendency though is then what kind of cost do they pay along the way. So I think there are conditions where small states at least have some uh, leverage to play. If nothing else, I'm trying to play an adversary off, off an ally. Right? If we think back to Annette Baker Fox's old work on the power of small states, sometimes maneuvering like a minnow between the big uh, fish can actually generate some goodies. like that metaphor. Uh, moving on, Lisa? Oh, um, I think the question was already asked. The question of abandonment works if you got nowhere else to go, but if China is able to pull this thing off in the next 25 years or so. So to me, it seems the key question is, can China pull off challenging the United States on a global well, so, so assuming, uh, assuming China is able to pull off a challenge on the regional level, if not global level, again, I, I, I think that will reify the American ability to say to small allies, if you want the, if smaller, these are often big, powerful states in their own right. Uh, if you want American backing, you're going to cut the following deals. Otherwise, you may have to deal with this on your own. You may not like the answer. And so I think under those conditions, both the demand for an American patron as well as the American ability to set terms on its patronage is going to go way, way up. And what that trend line looks like, whether China can pull this off, I, 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 I have intuitions, but I, I wouldn't want to claim to be the expert in the matter. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the talk. I found the paper very interesting. A lot of people push you on the framework, but um, let's say I buy the framework. Uh, um, it leaves me with this niggling question of, shouldn't allies know this? And if they do, why don't we hear their voice in the paper? Uh, so it's a paper all about how the U.S. uses and abuses allies. Can you tell us something about the abused, how they think, right? Some process evidence, I think, what people are looking for. They're really powerful if you had something 
from a decision maker saying, we're worried they might leave because they can't. Or we want to join this alliance because we know there's a short-term benefit, but we're still cognizant that later on they could. Do you have any evidence, yeah, from the abused? And if not, that would be great to add to the paper. Sure. So where are the allies in all of this? And shouldn't we have at least some process evidence of them going, uh-oh, U.S. is threatening, better ante up, right? Better sweeten the pot. Um, you know, it's the logical next step. I think John and I have been so focused on just getting what we have of the logic down pat that we haven't gone there because we, what we do see, at least from the American records, are what, what Mike called correlational uh, matters, right? Where you see the U.S. exert pressure, then the next day the French come back with uh, a better alliance demand or the Brits agree to change policy. I don't have inside baseball on what the Allies are doing, and I think... You're right, it would be nice to at least have some indication of that for a richer, fuller story. I think the overall narrative that I'm trying to offer of showing how the U.S. uses this, uh, this insular advantage to browbeat its allies can be told without that, but it becomes a mu much richer, more powerful story the more you can get to this process evidence. Thanks. Um, I have a question kind of on one of the implications that you put forth was that the um, the allies can be abused without essentially harming the um, alliance per se. And I'm just curious if you found through your research or if there's any variability in that. Um, and especially I'm thinking on the terms of like the threat, the whether like how strong the threat is and the time frame that the threat is working on. So, I mean, maybe it is that you see that when the U.S. is really threatening to pull out of alliances on high stakes issues that are really only like in the short term. But I'm thinking if there's something that the U.S. is pressing allies on very hard for over a long amount of time, that could have a lot more wear and tear on the alliance. Um, so I'm just, I'm curious if you found any of that or if it is just kind of no matter the issue, no matter the time frame, it's still going to, they're going to. Well, so I, I can offer you, uh, I can offer a little bit in that regard, right? If we think about, if we think about the Cold War for a second. The U.S. pushed the West Europeans pretty hard for about a half decade. Uh, you know, and this is at the height of the Cold War. This is the time when the Soviet bear was breathing down their back. And nevertheless, they kept coming back for more. Now, as Professor Parent rightly pointed out, this is the Cold War, for goodness sake. How much can we infer from current politics? from that. That's a legitimate uh, concern. But it at least suggests under certain conditions, browbeating allies pretty persistently, pretty rigorously, uh, may not be overly detrimental. The question becomes, is that a limited, are there limitations to that because of polarity or sense of threat or some other X factor? That's a, that's a good question. I don't have an answer for you. I guess my question in regard to that would be, uh, do you think that or from your research, do states develop amnesia if they get threatened more than once or with the, uh, the abandonment? Um, or can it be that the second time they're threatened, uh, they have a different response? The third time they're threatened, they have a different response? Um, is there any variability in that? So it's a good question. I don't have a good sense yet of cases where the U.S. repeatedly repeat with. The problem is that I don't have good evidence of, this, of the U.S. repeatedly threatening an ally that is led by the same leaders under a similar time frame, right? These threats often occur uh, sta you know, staggered throughout time. What I can say 
is that when, ally, when the U.S. threatens different allies over similar issues at different points in time, they tend to respond in similar ways. So for example, on the nuclear issue, the U.S. has threatened West Germany, Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, Israel, and a few others on nuclear matters, and the threats are each time taken seriously. So it doesn't seem like at least there's transnational amnesia kicking in. That's all, that, that's, that's all I can say at this point, but it's a good question. Uh, so uh, I, I'm puzzled by this whole thing. I'm sort of struggling a little bit. Like, you know, we have the same friends and we hang around a lot of the same circles and study with a bunch of the same people. But you know, my understanding about lots of what's going on in this history is just totally different from yours. Like, I, I, my whole reaction to all of this is none of this sounds right. Which, um, and so I've been trying to find ways to put my finger on it. And um, I thought I, I might ask uh, uh, things that I would observe about the world that seem inconsistent uh, with the way you've explained it and see if you react to them. So, so um, on the one hand, uh, I don't perceive any of the threats of abandonment as effective. Um, and uh, I would just look at the truism that one of the main things we complain about is, hey, we want you guys to spend more on your militaries and have, you know, put more spending and more effective militaries and better intra-European military cooperation. There's a whole set of demands we make, none of which have ever been fulfilled in reaction to any of our complaints. When we threaten to leave, when we just jawbone, when we say, actually, we love you, we'll participate in it. It doesn't matter. The Europeans are like, you care more about this than we do, you catch the buck, not us, and they always win. And, um, I, you know, to square yeah. your story with the persistent European cheap riding, um, they're it's not abusing very well. Better abusers. Um, uh, or there's the flip side of this, which is the United States has not, so, Eisenhower is a great hero of mine because he wanted to leave and he got stymied for a couple of reasons. The Europeans didn't really cooperate in letting him leave. That was one end. The other thing is that um, uh, American hawks beat him. And, um, and there's a persistent American side of this, which is that we actually do a crap job of threatening to leave over and over again because Partly it's the Cold Wars going on and everybody knows we're going to stay because we believe better dead than red, regardless of what the others believe. But um, metal. And we have hawks meddling around the world all the time, and we are hyper committed to these alliances. So, so um, you know, on the nuclear stuff through the Cold War, we're actually pursuing nuclear offensive capability a lot of the time, we're not comfortable with mutually assured destruction and letting Europe just defend itself and whatever. Europeans might be comfortable with that, and we do all kinds of things to put nuclear forces in Europe that the Europeans are like, holy crap, this is provocative, we don't want this, and our browbeating of them is not we might leave, it's that, no, 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 you're going to take these aggressive forces because we, the United States, 
see advantage in using you as a jumping off point for aggression in certain ways. And it's gotten worse since the end of the Cold War, right? But um, so, you know, the two alternative visions are you're one, you're wrong about us coercing our allies. They coerce us. The buck, the, the debate, the intra alliance coercion about who's going to catch the buck goes the opposite direction from what you're saying. And then the flip side of that is maybe it's not really about <coughs> coercion over who's going to catch the buck. It's coercion about the United States getting our allies to work with us to remake the world, to, be, to, to persist in, we're, we're not trying to get out. Um, we're not trying to be defensive. We're not trying to take advantage of our insular advantage. We actually just want a power project. We want to change the world. And we keep persistently doing it, you know, and, and, uh, um, and therefore going back to the alliances. Like we can't just say no. One other thing I'll just say, um, uh, another small ally that broke with us that you should think about somewhere in there is Mexico that um, was allied with us till 2004 and then over Iraq broke the military alliance with the United States. And you might think about, you know, that allows Mexico. It's one thing to break the alliance with us. It would be another if they started opening up Chinese bases in Mexico. But, yeah. You know. So... Is I, is, so there are two questions, right? One is, these threats of abandonment seem awfully ineffective, so how, w w what, is your, what is this theory doing in practice? What, is this argument right, and what is it doing? If it is indeed, even if it is right, what's it doing? And the second question is, is it really even if we do see abandonment threats, is it really a threat of abandonment for buck-passing purposes, or is it for something else altogether? Right? What, I, what I might call signing up the European allies for cockamamie international schemes, right? if I was to, quote, to paraphrase Barry Posen. Um, I fundamentally agree with you that um, these threats of abandonment don't always lead to the Europeans ponying up. I think the evidence that the U. How I, that said, the closest the Europeans ever came, in my estimation, and I'm sure we could have a discussion about this for poning up, was or giving in to American demands. Let's use it, let's put it in those terms. Was in the 50s and early 60s when the U.S. threats of abandonment looked credible because the U.S. has yet to be credibly committed or has yet to be fully committed in the Eisenhower and early early Kennedy years, Truman Eisenhower and early early Kennedy years to the continent of Europe. So it's when these threats of abandonment look real, and to make them look real is not an easy task, as you're hinting at. Uh, that's when we see a little bit of movement. But regardless, to the earlier point of what is the DV, I think what we see here is that these threats of abandonment can be made fairly, fairly uh, regularly without actually imperiling the, sort of the alliance. We can say, well, look at all the intra-alliance debates that don't go the American way or that don't cut in the American way. That's fine. But to the fundamental issue of can one threaten abandonment without imperiling the alliance, the answer does seem to be yes. Uh, as for coercion for other purposes, that, again, I, I think that's right. I think a lot of these threats of abandonment aren't about uh, who's going to pay more for European security. Although certainly in the early Cold War, that's a good chunk of it. I think later on it becomes what are we going to use these alliances for? Who gets to set the alliance agenda, bracketing what that agenda looks like? I think there the U.S. again gets to play the threat of abandonment to shape allied policy on whatever terms of debate are up at that particular moment in time. That's where I see a lot of the magic happening. So I think your uh, 
questions over what exactly are these alliances for are exactly what we're trying to explain, how the U.S. gets the allies to stay in line on whatever schemes the U.S. wishes to pursue. Um, so I have a question. Sure. Again, as Chair's prerogative. Uh, what is it that you really want to say? Yeah. Setting aside, you know, it's hard because there are two brains involved in this thing. But, like, if you've got a bonnet and there's a bug in it, yep. like, what is that bug? Right? Like, what, what's sort of the take home point or thing theoretically that really bugs you? Because um, I, I it's, it's just not clear to me, um, both from the paper, but also from your presentation. So I think the thing that gets my, uh, that gets in my bonnet is this notion that the U.S. It's this, the thing that gets me very frustrated is this notion that Alliances are these special snowflakes of institutions that can't be threatened, they can't be imperiled, there can't be discussion of leaving them, lest the whole, uh, the whole house of cards collapse overnight. And this idea was a concern of mine in the Obama years, it was a concern of mine in the Trump administration years, and it kind of cuts across a longstanding tendency in American uh, grand strategic theorizing that alliances are these Fabergé eggs that must be protected from any threats that may uh, even look at them in a funny way. When in fact, if we think about what alliances are, to your earlier point, I think you really rightly described it, alliances are states, uh, states are ally, alliances are states that have some cooperative interest that don't necessarily express a deep and pervasive interest in everything being hunky-dory, right? So we would expect some degree of intra-alliance coercion, intra-alliance bargaining, uh, coercion and bargaining. And so what I think we need to understand is how that process plays out, how different states are able to engage in those behaviors. And I think the United States is uniquely privileged in this activity and for a very long time because of this mindset of alliances must be protected and uh, husbanded along, that logic has been lost. That notion of one gains a lot from the allies, not by holding them close or kind of threatening abandonment, but by really browbeating that this time I might be out and if you don't pony up, we're in trouble, uh, the, the alliance is in trouble. That's how I think you manipulate allies. And I think this notion of institutional uh, commitments, this notion of maintaining a reputation for credibility, this notion of hugging them close, as Eugene mentioned at certain points in time, of speaking nice things, of the ritualistic incantations of the alliances as uh, perpetual motion machines, those are actually very detrimental things for how states can bargain inside of alliances. Who, who? Is, it, is, it the, is it the policy people that you're primary yeah. targeting? Or is it, it's not really the eigenberries in the world. I, I'm sorry? They just, they just put this ad in yeah. the New York Times. Okay. I think it began actually in the academy and migrating to the policy world. Now it's migrating back. I, I can't prove that. I, I, I have to trace it out. But whenever... Whenever I discuss alliances, not necessarily this paper, but whenever I discuss alliances with other academics, and you say things like threatening abandonment won't necessarily kill alliances, they, sometimes you get looked at like you, like you have a second head. Uh, there well, you do have a second I head. I do have a second head. <laughs> uh, damn, that's what the doctor was referencing. Um, 
So, so th th there are real, uh, I think there are real notions that alliances are these pervasive security institutions, expressions of national compatibility, expressions of national cooperation, that they must be deeply, uh, that, that one crosses an ally only with great circumspection, right, when, uh, only on the starkest issues. And I think that's, uh, I, th I, th I I think it's in the institutionalist literature. I know it's in some of the more uh, extreme manifestations of some of the work coming out of places like Princeton and other similar institutions with similar scholars. I know it's in the, it's in the policy world. As Eugene just pointed out, they kind of cohabitate and send ideas back and forth. This idea is alive and well. And I think it's highly theoretically problematic. I think it's highly policy pro problematic. Um, another thing that I might have floated, but so now I will now because it follows up your response to Ruiz, is, is um, like there, there is a perfectly good IR logic for why alliances should be fragile, right? And the institutionalists say they are fragile unless you institutionalize them. That's why we have to build all this superstructure of rules and meetings and secretariats and, you know, joint trainings and da-da-da, is because you know, given a choice between, if you face a security threat, you're in a country, you have two options. You could balance internally or balance externally, right? And internal balancing is expensive, so you don't want to do it. You'd rather pass the buck to your ally. But the good news about internal balancing is that you control the decision making about it. And then there's this external balancing thing where you agree that if, if they abandon me, I'm going to be screwed. I'm not going to be strong enough. But it's much cheaper to fight this opponent if, if somebody else catches the buck or helps me catch the buck. And so I do external balancing. But, but I constantly have a source of worry every time I choose the external balancing option that my ally won't show up because I've decided, I've made a decision to maintain my vulnerability. And sometimes you maintain your vulnerability because there's no other option. You're too weak to internally balance it yourself, and so you choose a patron. But if you are strong enough, now you have the option. And so you have to do all this stuff. There's this huge literature on alliance management and maintenance and, oh, how do, you, how do you make the alliance credible? Because the natural state of affairs of an alliance ought to be lack of credibility, right? And um, uh, so, I mean, to me, that's maybe the natural target. It's the, it's the target that's unmentioned right. in your pitch. But the natural target for you is to say, you know, all these people think alliances are naturally fragile because of this external balancing logic. Like you're desperate to, you know, reassure me, reassure me, reassure me, or I'm going to have to internally balance. And, um, and you're finding that, no, it's not that the allies demand reassurance all the time. It's that we keep threatening to leave, and they're so sure we're going <coughs> to... We're going to stay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, that, that's an excellent point. Excellent point. Do you want to respond to this? No, I, I, know, I, I think that's exactly right. And, and, and it's been lurking in the back of my mind that um, the institutionalists are only half the story here, right? If, if our argument is correct and there's a constant demand for alliances, it's not just that there are institutional uh, reasons. Uh, excuse me. It's not just the institutionalists who uh, ha 
it's not just that this argument poses an alternative explanation for the institutionalist argument, indeed shows that some of the process evidence doesn't square with that story. It's also an argument that's strongly, that's against this notion that uh, alliances are kind of bound to be broken up at the fr uh, if states get a better offer elsewhere, right? It's a, it's a logic that says under some circumstances, and maybe important circumstances, there are going to be some states that are such, such attractive allies that they just have a constant ability to find partners, and those partners have a constant desire to ally with them, and this keeps the external balancing options alive independent of what those states may do. That's right. So uh, I'd first like to establish that your point on that the U.S. has, throughout history, and you've mentioned kind of many examples, that the U.S. has threatened, you know, potentially departing from these alliances, and that afterwards, you know, the, the ally would, would potentially, you know, offer a better deal. The U.S. would extract some concessions, and, and things would, and due to the, you know, inertia, the great inertia of these alliances, that things would kind of move on and be stable from there on out. I don't necessarily know if I agree on the that the U.S. gets on, I think Professor Goltz brings up a great point of if you actually look at the evidence and what the U.S. actually wants, that there's actually kind of evidence to the contrary that the U.S. is actually bearing greater burden uh, in these alliances than when they first started. Um, but that argument's kind of been made. My question is sort of just based on your research. So if, I guess aside from maybe the example of Mexico, if all of these examples of the U.S. making these threats, but yet these... Um, these alliances remain, how far would the U.S. have to go for the threat to be, to cross a line, for, for you know, allies to, for these alliances to start actually breaking out? Hmm. Really credible. Um, by which I mean to say, look, the, breaking up and allies giving some concessions to what the U.S. demands are two different issues. I, I think you, Professor Goltz, and I may disagree a little bit at the margins over what the Allies concede, certainly on nuclear issues, I think. Um, but on the breakup question, look, if our argument is correct, there's almost nothing, uh, let me rephrase that, short of tying American hands, absolving American, uh, absolving the United States of its power to actually project force over a meaningful period of time, project capabilities over a meaningful period of time. There's always going to be a demand, I think, in many instances, for countries to see the U.S. as a partner and try to get the U.S. involved. So the U.S. may have to go pretty extreme and really bind itself to a very near-at-home presence for, uh, al for the alliances to break up directly. I think it's very hard to do this, to cause, an ally to cause far allies overseas to really see the U.S. as anathema. I think it's very hard to do. I think we are trying to, and, and NATO is still alive, Japan's doing pretty well. I mean, these things, weirdly enough, are still okay. I'm sorry? It's because we're wusses. All right. Well, like, we <laughs> determine whether we can leave or not. I, uh, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> we can just quit. Anyway, I don't, yeah. as I yeah, said, yeah. you have to tie your hand. I, I rather agree with you. Anyway, go. Moving on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to follow up on some of the earlier question. In about the role of geography. So the U.S. is pretty entrenched in the world today, right? There are like 800 bases or so, or whatever number you, you prefer to choose there. Don't you think that those 
spaces will kind of limit the room for maneuver of the U.S. of doing whatever it wants if, it, if its interests are so entrenched in an area. I mean, I'm thinking about the greater Middle East, for example. I mean, can the U.S. really leave one of its allies in that region off of one area without unraveling the entire thing? I think, I think the answer is yes. I, I, if I recall properly, the U.S. at some point no longer had troops in Saudi Arabia. At some point during the Iraq War, I think there were troops out of Kuwait at various points, at various points in time. The U.S. has put forces in other countries, moved them hither, thither, and yon. Uh, the U.S. Uh, moved for, I mean, when France moved out of the military structures of NATO, uh, the U.S. just pulled its forces out and moved them to Belgium or moved the headquarters to Belgium. Uh, the, these bases don't tie the U.S. down, and countries actually sometimes even build the U.S. bases to get them involved. You've seen a debate over Poland building bases for the U.S. these days. You forget that during the 1980s, Saudi Arabia built all the bases that the U.S. fought the Gulf War with and then helped with the Iraq War. Uh, so, so I don't think bases tie the U.S. down. I think the fact that we have, pick your, you know, pick your hundreds, but several hundred if not close to a thousand bases, Often built by countries seeking the U.S. to get in, seeking U.S. involvement, hints that there's something magical that could get in the U.S. on their side. And it's weird too because even when other countries may have lots of capabilities to throw around, they don't get these goodies. So it's something 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 about the U.S. that seems to be doing some of the lifting here. Final last word question. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.